0: Well, good morning, I'm Pastor Thad, and we get to look at the next section of Hebrews chapter 7. So while you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, let me encourage you as we move on in this passage, building what came before it with this explanation of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So this morning we'll look at our priest forever, Hebrews Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Here's God's good word for us this morning. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, For he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Please pray with me. God our Father, your word is good, right, and true. We come this morning to sit under your good word, explaining these details about Melchizedek and how they explain the greater blessings that come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, now our Lord and Savior. Help us to understand these truths, to anchor our confidence, the anchor for our soul in our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My question for us this morning before we dive into this and understand a little bit more about Melchizedek and how this author of Hebrews is moving from the priest of Melchizedek and this order in the priest of Melchizedek all the way through this passage, this section, to see how Jesus Christ is this better blessing that comes as part of a better covenant? My question for us is, what helps us to trust? What helps us to build our confidence in things? For example, I was recently walking down into my basement, and usually I can, you know, navigate the first couple uh, steps after the stairway without flipping the light switch on. But I was thinking, how far? There's a microphone cable there. Sorry. How far can I go into the basement until I need to see more details? How much further can I get until I maybe step on the dog's bone or crunch some Legos under my toes? How far do I trust before I need to see more details? I think in a way, that's where this author this morning is getting us to to see that there's this priesthood. And you've heard of him. You've heard of him through Mosaic's law and the, the Levite priesthood. But how far can we trust this new and better priest? How many details do we get to know to really build a confidence that he is our go-between, that he represents us, that he always lives to intercede for us? That's our hope and confidence this morning, that as we see these rich details, some of them seem a little complex and, and confusing, but as we get to see them clearly, we can build a deeper and greater confidence. So yes, I have five points, but we're going to hopefully move through these quickly as we see how these make sense in this passage. First, we see that this priest actually resembles the Son of God. I'm going to zoom into this phrase in the second half of verse 3 where the author says he resembles or is resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. This word resembling is an interesting word and it helps to build this idea where we come up with typology. This phrase along with the word in chapter 7 verse 15 where he says there is a likeness, he arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Clearly that doesn't mean he wears the same clothes, has the same hairstyle and kind of walks and talks like him. It's, It's a typology word. And then later in chapter 8 verse 5, we are described a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They're types, their pointers, they're details that we need to notice because they resemble. They're going to point us to the greater truths unfolded for us in the new covenant. Because these promise-shaped patterns are what we need to see. They continue in a new and better way in the new and better covenant. But this goes all the way back to Genesis 14, which is where our author is anchoring this story. So if you haven't recently read this interesting story of the priest Melchizedek, let me take you back there. This is Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. If you pull there or if you see it on the screen, let me preview a little bit to help us understand what Moses is trying to show us here. He's previewing this type of typology, this promise-shaped pattern, even as he's writing most likely from after the Exodus or during the Exodus, and he's looking back at what God revealed to him in creation, in Noah, in Abraham, in Isaac, and Jacob, and all then them, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's giving us true characters, real human beings who lived, who are also like reflecting images. They're resembling this greater story of God's historic redemption of all his people. It's also showing that God's divine authorship, he knew you before the foundations of the world, and he wants you to see, he wants you to see reflections of how he's picking people for himself, choosing them from different times, all because he has this beautiful story for you to be included in. Think just a second for the, the life of Abraham. God called him from a faraway country, said, I'm going to bring you to a new promised land. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And then specifically, if you remember this little passage in Genesis 13, 14, 15, where he and Lot, his nephew, have gone all this way. And then Abraham says, you know what, Lot? These pasture lands, a little too crowded with all of our animals. How about this? You pick one way, I'll go the other. You pick east, I'll go west. You pick west, I'll go east. You go left, whatever. Whatever. Those aren't accidental details for God. As Lot chooses to go that way on the map, whatever way that was, Abraham goes the other. Lot goes to, towards the east valley of the Jordan where Sodom and Gomorrah are. Abraham goes towards Canaan, the land of promise, not accidental. And then Lot meets this king of Sodom who brings up again in this story. So that this picture of a righteous king of peace could be painted in these very vivid, beautiful, captivating colors for us even today. So let's read Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Just a couple verses after his return, so after Abram's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor, or some translations have it, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. In this story, Moses is showing us these details of Melchizedek's interaction with Abram and what that means as, again, a promise-shaped pattern for how Jesus, the king, interacts with us and brings us these blessings. Now, there's a line of logic that we need to follow as we go through these passages. I'm trying to break this out into the better priest, the better tithe, and the better blessings. That's my goal this morning as we unpack some of these things. So please... Uh, Bear with me, walking through this. First, starting back in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7. There we go. We see that this Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem, and it's explained to us in a minute, a few verses later, he's also, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Literally, the name Melchizedek is king of righteousness. Any Hebrew reader would catch that, and the author here emphasizing that isn't just trying to be redundant and giving us another detail. He's trying to make sure that this is typology language. This is not biological detail. This is literary story information. In other words, he is a real live guy who lived a life in a wicked area. He's right in the next valley over from Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived a righteous and upright life. And as a king, he ruled Rightly. And he's also the king of a place named Salem. This is the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, not just absence of war, but comprehensive, civil, and wholeness and peace. So he is the king of peace, righteousness and peace. And there's also a sense in which these things go together, but they go together in this order. In other words, you can't have peace unless you first have righteousness. No mayor is going to get to a peaceful city unless there is upright and justice, upright laws and justice happening. One commentator puts it this way, it is only as Jesus achieved righteousness by his life and secured that righteousness for us by his death on the cross that peace with God is available to sinners like me and like you. He offers peace because he first achieved righteousness that we lack and we need. Spurgeon rightly remarked, Note well the order of these two and the dependence on the one upon the other, for there could be no true peace that was not grounded upon righteousness. And out of righteousness, peace is sure to spring up. And that's n- none of that is by accident here. So this priest, this king of righteousness and this king of peace, he functions here. He is a real person who had some real act- interactions with Abraham, the patriarch, but he functions also as a type, a pointer, a picture. He brings out bread and wine. He comes down into the valley and blesses Abraham and then receives Abraham's tithes. The, the priest's role here is the function of the go-between, and he's pointing ahead to a bigger, better intermediary, a bigger, better mediator for us. In other words, Melchizedek points to Abram. He says, here's a God, the God most high, the possessor or creator of heaven and earth, and he has delivered you, Abraham, from these battles. He's the one that provided deliverance for you. Go back and read the rest of the story of Genesis 13 and 14 and how crazy this battle was. And Lot, who chose to go east towards the city of Sodom, was caught up in this war. Not accidentally. So Melchizedek is trying to point out, this isn't accidental, Abraham, that you were able to conquer this set of kings. This isn't accidental that your nephew Lot was brought into this battle. And it's not accidental that you've been delivered so that you can have this blessing. He also points, Melchizedek also points to a God who provides. We'll see in a second what Abram tithes. Where did he get any of that stuff? Where did he get those blessings? He had just been delivered in war from these four kings. And out of that, he is able to then give back. This points a little bit these promise-shaped patterns point us, as we're going to see next week, to this better priest who is even better than the Levitical priesthood, who, again, is commanded to re- receive the tithes, the, the lamb and the first fruits, as the sacrifice back to God. But it points that God first provides, and he gives of that provision. So this king by translation of his name, is the king of righteousness, the king of Salem. And he also shows that he's without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Again, we might read that detail and think, so he was just kind of portal transported onto the planet and like poof. Again, it's not a biological detail that this author is trying to give us. It's the literary function of him as a type. He's a forever priest pointing us to our forever priest. Jesus himself. Moving on, though, we see that this man, this priest, Melchizedek, was given tithes, and that's a pointer again. They're real tithes. They're real uh, goods that he was, uh, the the spoils of war, in a sense, real stuff that he was giving to a real priest, but they're also pointers. So see here in verse 4 through 6, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoil? In other words, Abraham interacts with him after coming back from this war. Melchizedek didn't deserve any of this stuff. He hadn't contributed troops or helped to fight in the battle. He simply shows up in the valley, comes out to meet him, comes down from Salem to meet Abram in the valley. And because of that, because he's an intermediary, a go-between, a priest of God Most High, Abraham recognizes that and says, Here's my gift back. Here's my tithe back to the God who provides and delivers. Incredible mention here. But we see in verse 5, even the descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, so there's a, going to be another priesthood, another order of priests, they even get tithes, and in a sense, they're the descendants of Abraham, he's the author, he's making this genealogical connection that even the descendants, the offspring, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob was Israel, his, Israel's 12 tribes, one of them the Levites, they're even gonna receive these tithes in a sense by extension. The argument, in other words, that we're gonna see through verse 6 into verse 8, that there's a lesser to greater. In verse 8, he receives tithes. The one case, the tithes are received by mortal men. Melchizedek's a real guy. He's not going to exist forever. But in a sense, he's pointing to something greater. That's the lesser to greater argument. Even, as it goes on to say in verse 9 and 10, that the descendants of Abraham, the Levites, were even in the loins of his ancestors. That's another way to say, we might say a father has the twinkle of the eye of their offspring, in a way. It's pointing to the real truth that this is coming. It's gonna be another picture of this promised shape pattern. In other words, if I can recap most of this before we get into what that means for us today a little bit, God defeats Abraham's enemies to rescue his own nephew. He provides for his needs. And of that provision, he gives what Abraham needs to tithe back in return. And then he gives Abraham another layer of this rich blessing that Abram is blessed by the God Most High, the provider or uh, possessor, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, what do we do with tithes today? I think it can actually be made the case that the tithes, because they predate the Levitical priesthood and that command to tithe because Melchizedek comes before him, we can make that connection that the tithe is not, not just restricted or stuck in Moses' law. But there's some nuance there. What do we do that in the New Testament? There's a lot of helpful discussion that can be had because God provides and of what he provides, we steward all of that and we give back the first fruits, the first tenth, the blessings that overflow for God's tithes, we call them, and all the other abundance that he gives us as our offerings. I think it's still in effect today. But the point here is that tithes are that hard and fast evidence. It's another detail as I click on the light in the room to say there's lots of things that I need to notice that point me ahead to how much better the priesthood of Jesus is. It doesn't erase those details. It highlights them in order to point the way forward. So don't miss the author's point here, that Abraham's tithes came from God's deliverance, this called the slaughter of the kings. He was provided by God to be given back to him. Abraham recognizes Melchizedek. He didn't have to be introduced to him. He didn't need to see his resume. And he gives to the priest of God Most High of God's tithes. In other words, God comes down into the valley. He comes down for us even into the valley of the shadow of death. He provides what we need for life. He gives us what we need to steward and give back to Him in worship. And then He gives us a blessing that is better than we deserve. Let's look at that better blessing in verse 6, the second half of verse 6 and 7. He says, Melchizedek then received the tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek because Abraham had the promises. If we go back in Genesis 14, verse 18, it says specifically that Melchizedek brings out to the valley the bread and wine. Now, a lot of people want to make connections, draw straight lines to the Lord's Supper. And I think clearly that's the picture, but we got to insert into there a really important detail. It's a little more jaggedy line than we might want to draw, that Moses is writing Genesis. Moses is the one who lived through the Exodus. Moses saw that really raw picture, lived the, the sour bread of the Passover, saw the cup of God's wrath poured out on the egyptian firstborn and it's bigger it's weightier it's so much more of a blessing to think that that's what is pictured here when melchizedek brings bread and wine down to the valley it's sustenance for abraham because he's just fought a little really long war he traveled all the way up to this area of dan that would have been days travel away to fight this battle and out of that melchizedek brings him these blessings and blesses him with the blessing of God Most High. In the midst of the Canaanites, the king of Sodom is standing right here, hearing that. Here in Melchizedek say, "Yes, Abram, you are blessed by a higher God than any of these Canaanite gods, the very God most high, that even he's the possessor and creator of heaven and earth. He doesn't need us as servants, but he's delivered your enemies into your hand. And when Melchizedek blesses blesses Abram, who has the promises, remember what that promise was, how valuable, how rich, how deep that was for Abraham, that God would be his God, that he would be with him on this long journey, that he would give him an inheritance, a promised land, and that he would have offspring, even though that sounded ludicrous and beyond hope in his old age. And that son would be the firstborn of many, many by faith. Now, when we see that phrase that the inferior is blessed by the superior, it's a little convoluted. In other words, it's saying the good, the better, the best, blesses the rest. And here, again, this is a picture of Jesus. Out of his incredible abundance, he blesses us. And that doesn't mean he's lacking one bit of what he provides for us. This is such a rich blessing for us today to think about how that plays out in so many ways of life. Because the blessing, catch this, the blessing that we get by this better priest who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, the blessing we receive from this king and this priest is Jesus himself. Out of Jesus' own mouth in John 8, 56, he says this in a way that is so clear and it lands and the people hearing it reject it. He says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he rejoiced in the promise that there was going to be this day where offspring would come, where the promised one would secure his inheritance. Jesus just said that Abraham saw it. No, he didn't see it fully. And finally, he saw it in the kernel type. He flicked on the lights in the basement and got to see the little details. Jesus said he saw it and was glad. And you remember where Jesus goes on with this phrase? He's explaining to these Jews that they think just because their father was Abraham that they're automatically in God's people. And he says, no, 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 it's by faith. And Jesus goes on to say, before even Abraham was here, the blessing that Abraham was happy about, was glad about, the blessing that Abraham was looking forward to was Jesus himself and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before anything was actually done to show Jesus on the planet, in types, in pictures, in these beautiful forms and shadows, Jesus was there. And now Jesus is here. And he is the blessing that we get to receive. He himself So what does this mean, that we have a priest who is forever? It means on one level that this important detail of Melchizedek pointing to a forever priest points us to our forever priest, the the one true priest, the great high priest, that the author of Hebrews is making pains to go through from chapter 5 all the way 6, 7, 8, to anchor for us that this is the one true priest who we get to believe in, who always lives to make intercession for us, as if to say your confidence might seem shaky, you might not seem to trust, but look at all these details. Look at all these reasons to have confidence in a better Savior, your King of righteousness and your King of peace. I think the author of Hebrews As he explains in chapter 10, verses 32 to 35, he's saying for them and he's saying for us, if you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, you saw the goodness, but it didn't fix everything. You still struggle. You still weep. You still have decisions to make. You still have life to live. You have diapers to change. You have your older parents to care for. You have problems. Your marriages are hard. Your hearts weep over the world. You still have these things. You endured hard struggle with suffering, he goes on to say. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. If we look at the world around us today, we're probably not in the same shoes that this congregation was. But y'all know this. In your workplaces, you don't even have to put a big bulletin, a big bumper sticker up on your desk place that says Jesus is Lord to get a little bit of questions. You don't have to have an open Bible on your desk for your HR department to walk in and wonder what you're doing. You don't have to have a sign in your yard that says Jesus is King to have public reproach, to have questions asked, to have neighbors, friends, maybe even family wondering why you're part of those fundamentalists or extremists or religious right or whatever they want to call it. In other words, if the world is trying to encroach on our trust and confidence in a good Savior, the author of Hebrews is saying, look at the details, see the specifics He is the anchor for our soul and we can go all the way down to look at the cords on the rope to peel back every single strand of that and say they're all strong because Jesus, since the foundations of the world has been planning for you and for me to see him, to know him, to love him, to cherish him and the tithe that we get to give back of the abundant blessings that he's given for us is not just the first fruits, it's our whole life. It's that good. So if you're sitting here today, you're wondering what Melchizedek has to do with me or with this problem or with this decision or with this challenge or with this struggle, sometimes we see that God seems too far off and these details are saying, no, he comes down into the valley with us. Sometimes we think that it might be easy to believe on a weekend. Sure, pastor, it's simple sitting in a comfy chair in an air-conditioned building. What about this? What about when I'm watching my mother struggle in death? What about watching my neighbor's divorce? What about watching my cousin's alcoholism? What about watching my son struggle with pornography? What about that? Where is Christ in that valley? Melchizedek is pointing ahead and saying, he's right here. He's taking your burdens, and He's giving you Himself. If faith seems hard in this season, cling to Christ as the anchor of your soul. Paul, when he's writing to a struggling church in Galatia, gives us this reminder. (laughs) And I'll close with this. Christ has come into our valley, he says. He has redeemed us so that in Christ Jesus, the very blessing of Abraham, that God would be your God, that you will be his people, that he'll bring you into the promised land and secure your inheritance through his Son, that blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles like you and me so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, please hear that that is the surest, most certain confidence we can have, that Christ has come to you in your time of need, delivered you from every enemy, provided every need, so that not only are you brought to neutral, but so that you can worship him with your whole lives and praise him for the rest of eternity. Please pray with me. God, your promises are so good. Your blessings are so rich. Help them this morning to build our confidence in Jesus, to see the details matter, and they mean more for us. When Jesus, the superior one, blesses me and us, the inferior one, it means everything for our life, for our faith, for our walk of hope. I pray all this, that your spirit would work through your promises so that we can receive Christ a new and afresh. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.